0: Thank <laughs> you. Welcome back to another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Bird. Uh, excited to be on the show with my co host, Ms. Rachel Weaver.
1: Hey, happy to be here with all of you this week.
0: Absolutely. And then we have an amazing guest, Mr. Gregory Noel. Please say hello to the audience. What's going on, audience? There you go. Love to have it. Now, let's read your bio real quick, Greg, and then we're going to jump into this interview because I'm excited. So Greg Noel is a gregarious, charismatic, and life-loving human being who identifies as a first-generation Haitian-American, licensed associate, marriage, and family therapist. Greg enjoys the privilege of working with a diverse population of clients who identify as being Black, Indigenous, uh, Latinx, Pacific Islander, Asian, White, genderqueer, heterosexual, neurotypical, neurodivergent, religious, -religious, non-religious, able-bodied, disabled, documented, undocumented, low socioeconomic low socioeconomic status, and other marginalized identities. Um, so, Greg, we met, when was it, back in October, November, and um, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the importance of mental health and, like, some of the work that you do because you just kind of give us a little bit of introduction to yourself. Tell us what you're about
2: um yeah man it's it it was uh i would say like a fortuitous opportunity that you and i had the chance to connect Mm. um i've been a big fan of the work that y'all do here at the black menaces um uh, as we were talking before the interview, I don't really do social media like that, but I caught wind of what y'all were doing. You know <laughs> that y'all 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 got reach because y'all found me. <laughs> you know, non social media using self. And then um, when I met you in person, um, you had told me, "Oh yeah, we got a podcast too." Mm. And I'm like, "That I do." So I said, say less. Yes. And I got on the podcast mm. and I've been rocking with y'all heavy on the podcast. Okay. And I'm one of those people, man, I don't just jump into the new episode. I don't do that. I don't do you it like that. I went from the jump, okay, you know, okay. from episode one to, you know, having the opportunity to just see y'all growth and to, you know, see how y'all been able to you know, um, continue to do this amazing work of creating an intentional space mm-hmm. and the space that y'all have created, um, it, it's reaching and it's um, really resonating with people. I, I have to say it resonates with me. So um, for me, when you ask me what I'm about, um, I, I'm i about uh, restoration and transformation, man. Mm-hmm. That's um, some of my mantras that I've been on recently recently. Where, um I have the fortunate opportunity and the privilege to you know, hold a master's degree um, that's associated with the mental health profession. And I get a chance to sit across amazing human beings, um some of them in their most vulnerable and uh, most challenging moments that they're experiencing in their life, and I get a I get a chance to really connect with them on a human level and have these conversations with them, in a, in a real down to earth and real genuine way, and we try to support them um, in finding whatever desired resolution and outcome that they're seeking.
0: Mm, I, love yeah. that, I love that. Yeah. So, what was it that uh, that got you into to your field of, of licensed marriage and family therapy?
2: Yes. um, I got to put the associates on it because a brother's still working on um, dropping the A. Um, That A allows people to know that I'm being real transparent with them, letting them know um, that I still have one requirement left to be fully licensed, which is, um, finishing my relational hours, uh, background on, um, marriage and family therapy. When you're trying to get full credentials, you have to fulfill 500 hours of relational. Um, I graduated my program back in 2020. Mm -hmm. So, um, unfortunately, uh, the global pandemic did me no favors mm. in getting my hours. So right. um, now that things have gotten a little bit back to, you know, we can be in person, Yeah. Um, that's been helping me to finish the track of completing my hours. So that's the only thing left. I finished my national exam and everything like oh, that. Yeah, you do and, that. You the know, hours. I just got to get them hours done. Then the brother's fully situated to go um mm-hmm. i had to say that just so nobody try to come from my head and you know <laughs> sewer brother, you're brother, like look i'm i'm, I'm so coming so uh, out the gate with hey, it okay come so. on like i'm proud of the a you know okay, don't don't, ain't, nobody, ain't nobody trying to hide nothing or nothing like that you know disclaimer mm-hmm. um but um when it when we talk about <clears throat> so when we talk about um how i came into my profession um, I gotta be real transparent and honest with y'all. Um, you know, I grew up in a family system where I, I, I came to the conclusion that my normal wasn't necessarily like normal, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, there were a lot of things that I was exposed to and a lot of things that I experienced, um, that gave me room for pause and often put me in, in these positions of like, um, confusion, but also curiosity. You know, I was exposed to a lot of, um, you know, like the, 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 the term, you know, things that have led to complex trauma. So I was exposed to a lot of adverse experiences
1: Mm.
2: and, you know, I, I struggled to make sense of what my, what, what my experiences were but then I was able to have the fortunate opportunity of being introduced to all these different professions. And the mental health profession was one that stood out to me because I was like, oh, that has answers. Mm. Mm. You know, I'm like, oh, there's answers there. And then I I decided to go seek those answers. And in finding those answers, I was like, oh man, like this is helping me. I would love to be able to find a way to, you know, gain this knowledge and then be able to put it into practice. Mm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Question, what made you want to do a licensed marriage and family therapy mm-hmm. degree over, you know, a master's in social work mm-hmm. or doing like a PhD in like psychology or something? Like, I'm curious what made you choose that um, type of degree and study mm-hmm. rather than like some people who just do like a, You know, a a licensed clinical social work degree.
2: Well, I appreciate you asking that question, Rachel. Um, People often joke that uh, people don't just go to my field; they Mm -hmm. stumble into it. Okay, you know, because we know that um, the OG mental health profession is being a psychologist. Mm -hmm. You know that you know Sigmund Freud and Mm -hmm. you know Jung and all these cats that you know, uh, you know, started the profession from the ground up Mm. and I actually completed my undergraduate degree in psychology, um, back at Utah tech. Um, I was out there from 2009 to 2013 and after completing my degree, um, I knew I wanted to persist. I knew I wanted to continue, but I didn't necessarily know if it was going to be continuing in psychology because, you know, you got to get the highest of highest in that field. You got to yeah. get that PhD. You know, yeah. y- y'all mm-hmm. had, um, Dr. Kimberly Applewhite mm-hmm. on, on the podcast, you yep. know, I'm a fan y'all. So y'all yes. had, <laughs> you know, Dr. Kimberly Applewhite shout out to Dr. Applewhite. She's amazing. Mm, she um, is- but I, that wasn't for me. So I was, um, I had to, I had to take a little pause. I come from, um, humble beginnings. Um, so I, I didn't necessarily have the the funds to continue my education. Yeah. So mm. when 2013 ended, I had some opportunities to work, as Nate and I were talking about before the podcast. And um, I took a, a few-year hiatus. It was about from 2013 to 2018. Okay. You know, I had to hit the pause. I had to stack my funds up. Right. And, and then when I was able to stack the funds up, then I was like, okay, I'm ready to go back to school. And when I was looking... Um, I just, you know, was looking at programs and I was just like, man, like, I don't necessarily think I want to do the work of like that more of like that macro level, you know, work that social work does. Mm. And then, of course, again, like I didn't really have all the funds necessary to go Ph.D., you know, clinical route level with psychology. (laughs) And then I stumbled upon marriage and family as I was doing my research. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, like, what do they do? Cause I, you know, first I thought of the stigma, and I was like, "Oh, if they're only working with like families and stuff like that, I'm out." But and 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 that's no. If any of the families I work with, I love y'all, <laughs> and we we do good work. But I, I was I I was drawn to the field because you get a chance to work with individuals, you get a chance to work with couples, you get a chance to work with families. Mm. I was like, "Oh, you you can." reach more and you can do more Mm. with this profession yeah um and so it just fit it felt like it was like you know just right you know how you know like uh i can't remember the one that fairy tale with the porridge and everything and you found the one that's just right yeah the goldilocks Mm -hmm. and the three bears and um that's how i felt like with marriage and family therapy okay yeah interesting
0: interesting that's cool yeah so kind of rewinding back just a little bit um in your bio, you mentioned that you're a first generation Haitian American. Uh, where did you grow up? And then, you know, what was it like growing up uh, with immigrant parents? And you know, maybe how did that influence, like, you know, some of your career decisions, things like that?
2: Um, so again, um, man, I feel I, I feel privileged um, to be a first generation Haitian American. Um, I was fortunate enough that my my mother. Um, I grew up in a single parent household. Um excuse me, I kind of need to cough, so I'm gonna <coughs> <coughs>
1: <I'm not ready. laughs> I
2: know <I'm> sorry
1: <laughs> we'll <cut> this out.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: <I'm> like hopefully you cut all that
0: out. I'm so sorry. That's cool. I muted you both.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> no, was both. I
2: know, right <laughs> Rachel. I told you I was recovering too, you know? Right. So um so uh, that was that's a good question. Um so for me, i was fortunate enough to have my my mom who made that courageous decision to immigrate from Haiti um, back in the 80s. And she immigrated from Haiti to Miami, Florida. Mm. Um, you know, oftentimes Haitians joke that you know, you, you can either find us in Miami or you can find us in New York. You, yeah. know? Like, you know, like, and and I, I've been fascinated to find Haitians out here in Utah. That yeah. that throws me for a but loop. They all
0: come from Miami. <laughs> and New yeah, York. no, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I was gonna say they all yeah. their
1: home base is always one of those. Uh-huh. You know, I'm over here when I meet someone, I'm like, like what, what, like okay, so, there's
2: a decent amount out here. Yeah. So At BYU especially. Facts. So, um, so that's, that's where, uh, my mother ended up was in Miami. And then, um, she met, um, you know, the, again, this is the dysfunction. Um, she met the person that she ended up like having me with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was born in Miami, Florida and growing up, um, actually the, like the, the native tongue that the locals speak uh which is a, a a mixture and and one of your guests had talked about we have west indies roots from Haiti mm-hmm. um again I don't want to mispronounce her name Michelleda Yeah Michelleda okay, yeah. Michelleda um shout out to Michelleda Uni- Unity Block Party that was, mm-hmm. that episode was fire man again big fan um mm-hmm. so uh it's a like Haitian creole is a mixture of whatever they spoke before slavery and then the French that was forced on them through slavery. Okay. So um, I was taught uh, Haitian Creole, and that's what I was really proficient at. Until of course I'm I'm here in America. You gotta assimilate. You gotta acculturate. And then I learned English, and um, and then you know due to some of the the you know Michelle that kind of alluded to this, due to some of the stigma and the ethnocentrism that was happening down in Miami. Um, I, I learned to perfect my American accent, mm. which impacted um, my ability to be proficient at Haitian Creole. So uh, I, st- I still speak Haitian Creole. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. To this okay. very day, I there still speak go. some Haitian Creole, but as I'm not as proficient as I used to be.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I, you know, one thing that's... the that all of the the immigrant people that we've talked to on the podcast they talked about is is that need, that feeling that they need to assimilate, right? And have to to blend in with everyone else. I think American culture definitely has that vibe where, you know, you're expected to conform to a a particular type of culture. And uh, and that's really like where it stands, you know? So uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that as well. But like, how would you say that that affected you like as a teenager and then growing up feeling that need to assimilate?
2: Um, it makes me think of W.E.B. Du Bois's concept of dual consciousness. Um, I I joke around and say I, I grew up Haitian Black at home, and I grew up being taught the three L's. And the three L's is lacay, l'école, l'église. And that's home school, and church. Mm. And if you weren't doing one of those, right. you got hit with the coto po'ala. And that's where you are going. <laughs> because I know you ain't got school today and church is tomorrow. Mm. right? So coto po'ala. Mm. And um, for me... Growing up in that type of environment, you know, there was always that immigrant success frame is Mm. the term that I learned where you're taught that you got to succeed at all odds. And what you're aiming for are the professions that are viewed as the good jobs. You and I, Nate, were talking about one of those professions, which is becoming a lawyer, Mm -hmm. becoming a doctor, going into business or becoming an engineer. So that was what was presented to me when I was at the house. And then um, your academics were always at the top. That was your job. And you got to do well at your job or there's a problem at home. Mm -hmm. So the expectation was when you go to school, that's a, a privilege because I fought hard to get here to have you here. Mm -hmm. So this is a privilege that you get this good American education Mm -hmm. and you better not mess this up. (laughs) Right. right. This is your inheritance. Mm -hmm. The American dream is your inheritance. Do not mess this up. Mm Yeah. So the expectations were heavy. And for me, when I was in school, because... I, I was growing up in two worlds and learning two different languages simultaneously. At first, um, the literacy portion of school was very challenging, you know, because you 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 got to find a way to to be able to translate and understand through these different veins. And I'm I'm having two cultural things clash with one another, mm. so I I ended up having to be in in some remedial literacy classes. And then um, now that's one of my strengths is, mm. and then, you know, math kind of fell to the wayside. <laughs> Actually, math used to be one of my strengths okay. because my literacy was challenged mm. because of my, um, you know, living in that dual, that uh, double consciousness. And, you know, Ibram X. Kendi added to the dual consciousness. Mm. So it's it's been like living in two worlds and... Um, and I told you about that ethnocentrism where, um, you gotta, you know, get in and fit in, you know, like, so for me, it was trying to be, um, African-American passing mm. Mm. because if you can be African-American passing, you don't get it as bad as, you know, some of us, you know, like, you know, the Jamaicans and, you know, some of the other people from like Barbados and the other islands that were around where it was evident that you were outside of the accepted group. And, Mm -hmm. and my thing was, I always found like a good group of community because, um, us first generation Haitian Americans, you know, we, 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 we clicked up we always connected and Mm. and it was it was uh i felt like it was a good experience to be amongst people who had similar backgrounds of me and were going through a similar experience of you know going through this double consciousness dual consciousness experience and trying to figure out do i do i who am i am i the person that's at home who is the Haitian or am I the American that's in this public setting? Like, who am I? And and trying to make sense of all that at a young age. Yeah.
1: yeah. You, you bring up like a lot of like really important things that I want to ask about, like multiple <laughs> questions I have <laughs> after everything you've talked about. Um, and I think one of the things that you highlighted that I don't know is necessarily unique to, black americans Mm -hmm. and like the experience that you have as a black american Mm -hmm. is when you are a black um an immigrant from another part of the diaspora to Mm -hmm. america when you come here you not only are dealing with like the status of being someone who's an immigrant and Mm -hmm. dealing with that but also Mm -hmm. you know african americans or black americans people who are from america Mm -hmm. they have their own culture their own ways right and you're oftentimes Black immigrants from other countries are put into communities and spaces with um, African-Americans, right? Mm -hmm. But although we might look the same, culturally, we're very different. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there is a lot of um, exclusion that Mm -hmm. people, Black immigrants, experience Mm -hmm. because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really interesting because my boyfriend, he's also, he's Mm Ghanaian-American, and Mm -hmm. he talks a lot about this too, the same experience of Mm -hmm. like, I... Like, I identify one way, but, like, I'm presented and treated as another, mm-hmm. but then I'm also excluded as another Ooh. if I'm not fully, like, identifying this way. When it's, like, in my household, you know, we might look similar, but, like, mm-hmm. the way that my family taught me things and did things is very different than the way his family taught him things. Um, and so it's just interesting. I feel like that's—I don't know if other ethnic groups deal with that, but— um, and maybe like I maybe Hispanic and Latino people do just because mm-hmm. they have a lot of like people who are born here versus people who immigrated here. But I think that's something unique to like the black experience that people don't always think about that we deal with as like a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. That, yeah. So uh, another question for you, um, in addition to being an L.A. MFT, uh, you're also a husband and father. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And then you also, you know, you Haitian American and you're also a black man. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of tell us what it's like just navigating some of those, those roles? Um, and then especially like what it's like to be a, a black man in the therapy profession, because that is something that is more rare than, than anything.
2: Dang. These are some heavy hitting questions. (laughs) Y'all, 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 y'all living up to you know the legendary mantle that y'all present. Y'all don't mess around. You got me over here blushing. Uh, Hey, hey, y'all doing it. So um I I have to say, um it's been it's been a humbling experience to have these um amazing identities of being a husband and being a father. Um, I'm currently in an interracial uh, marriage. Um, my wife identifies as being first-generation Mexican-American. Um, and it's it's been interesting being with my wife and being married to my wife because um, she's more indigenous-presenting. Mm. So because she's with me, she's more racially ambiguous. Mm. So oftentimes it's been interesting where people are like, you know, they'll see, they'll see my wife, they'll interact with her. And then later on, they'll ask me, what is she by the way? Mm -hmm. Interesting. (laughs) So that's been an interesting experience because she's with me for whatever reason. Like it, like people are like, I could have sworn she was half, she was Mm -hmm. mixed or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, but no, she's full Mexican American. And you know, our, our little baby girl is a little Afro-Latina. Mm. Um, shout out to my baby girl, you know, like, <laughs> you, know, when, you know, legend. Like you know, so. <laughs> But um, she is, um, you know, Black presenting. Mm. My baby girl is Black presenting. Y'all had the episode where, you know, y'all were talking about genetics and, you know, how whoever parent has the predominant genes, that's often... That's passed down. That's the traits that are passed down, and these jeans are heavy. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, black so. genes are very dominant. I love it. Maybe so when you see my baby girl, the only way you can tell that she has other um, identities within her is through her hair. Mm. Other than that, like my baby girl, real black African, <laughs> I'm presenting. Mm. You know, so um, being. Again, it's been a humbling experience being a husband. Um, being a husband and a father has ha, has caused me to have to be in a place of reflection, to look myself in the mirror, and to face a lot of the things that I was avoiding in myself. The things mm. that I thought I quote unquote left behind when I left. You know my my circumstances my life circumstances behind so Mm. i talk about miami but i did i finished my um eighth grade and high school years in las vegas nevada and these two cities played a big role in my development as the person i am today and and for for better or for worse and you know as i've gone through my formative years of transitioning into an adult, I I had thought that, you know, just because you leave your circumstances that you, they're, they're not a factor Mm, anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was living in this, in this false pretense that I had grown, that I had, I had, I had left those traumas behind, Mm. that those traumas, they, they, they a thing of the past.
1: Mm.
2: And then some of the experiences that i had here in utah in conjunction with becoming a, f- a husband 2018 that's when my wife and i got married and then becoming a father 2021 in the midst of the challenges i was facing i had the the traumas that were in me i they came to the surface and i had to face them and they they wrecked me mm. and mm to be real transparent and honest with y'all um wreaked havoc on my marriage mm. almost almost decimated my relationship with my daughter mm. and to to be a black man mental health professional you go through things that you never thought you would have to go through. You have experiences that you never thought you would have because again, that immigrant success frame told me that when you get the titles, when you get the, you get the good job, you get the Mm. benefits, you know, when, when you, when you are able to put on the attire, when you're able to speak in that professional voice, Mm that that's how you get the respect and that's how you get the the, the final like, oh, you're okay. We, we won't disrespect or degrade you no more. You good. You get the pass. But unfortunately, that was a false pretense. That was a false reality. And I had to come to the truth that some people, it doesn't matter what your titles are, what um, your education is. If you can really finesse the the English language, Mm. you know, because that's Mm -hmm. what we do in the Black community. Mm -hmm. You know, we make things (laughs) our own. It doesn't matter how you finesse the English language, code switch, if you must, to them, you're still whatever they perceive you to be. Mm -hmm. And I learned that and that almost ruined me. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, um, I don't just do therapy, I go to therapy. Mm -hmm. because you know, I would be a hypocrite as a mental health professional to not utilize the tool that I'm right. working in. Exactly, and, and therapy um, has played a big role in me being able to um, go from rock bottom to where I'm at right now. Mm. As a as a husband and as a father, um, I have not fully arrived. Um, I'm still on my journey of, you know, as we talked about restoration and transformation, but um, I'm not running and hiding from my history and my past anymore. I see it. I see it in, in um, in f- for what it is, the good and the bad and the ugly, and I'm doing my best to not just see it, but to work through it and to transcend from mm. those horrors and those atrocities. Mm. That makes mm. sense. That makes yeah. sense.
1: And so as you have been on this journey to figuring these things out, you know, for yourself and discovering them, um, what if you could go back to maybe like pre-marriage you, before you had a child, you and give yourself like, knowing what you know now, right? It's always easier to look back and say what you could have done differently. But if there was something you could have given yourself a piece of advice to make the road a little easier what would you have said that would be would that be you know going to therapy or just sitting in your trauma more like what what would that look like if you could give yourself some advice before you embarked on these different journeys and and titles of getting married and having a a child
2: dang again y'all live up to (laughs) y'all y'all man so all right black menaces um asking these tough hitting questions um no i appreciate that question rachel i've I, I have to say that I've thought about that a few times and I've I've had to have some honest conversations with my wife. Um, I, I had to tell my wife that, I, like, to, as cliche as it is to say, I, I didn't see myself making it this far. Like, uh, to be honest with y'all, um, there was a time in my life I, I was shocked when I was, you know, making it to the point that I made it, mm. you know, mm. I was, I was shocked. I was like, oh, okay. Like uh, I, I, like, cause th- there were things that were said to me, you know, you get, um, you get mixed messages. You get the message of do all, what it takes to succeed, but then there's seeds of doubt where people are telling you, oh, you'll never get there, do what it takes, but you'll never get there. So I was always telling myself, um, live in the here and now, like live in the moment. If you have us, you have an accomplishment, take that win. Because you never know what will happen tomorrow. So there were aspects of my life I didn't see for myself. You know, I, I, I didn't envision husbandhood. I wanted it. Mm. Like there was a, you know, there's a there's a compartmentalization that happens where You have deep desires and goals, but then you'll lock that away thinking that that's going to keep it safe. If you don't adamantly, directly think about that desire or goal, then maybe it will come to pass and you'll be pleasantly surprised. Mm. So in in my mind, I was like, deep inside, I'm like, man, I, I, I came from brokenness. I came from dysfunction. I want to create stability. I, I want to be with people who care about me, who love me, who genuinely see me as someone who has value and worth on this earth. And I want to get there, but will I get there? But I'll I'll hold out hope for that, that I'll get there. And when I got there, I wasn't prepared. I mm. wasn't mentally Emotionally, you know that social emotional intelligence. Yeah. I wasn't prepared to arrive at that place of husbandhood, fatherhood, because those were things I wanted for myself. But I, 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 there was a part of me that was like, I don't think you'll get that. Mm. So that's what—that's the only way I can answer that question, yeah. Rachel. Yeah.
1: No, I think that that's real, and I think especially as as Black people, I feel like we don't always, you know, within our homes or even within our communities, we don't always have the best role models for what family relationships look like, for what a husband and wife relationship should look like. And so it can be something that we we want, but because of we, we never have really had good models of a good examples of it, we don't really know if that's actually true for us. And then add on the layer of if you're dating in a community that is majority white is majority doesn't look like you and all these things you're experiencing racism in the community and it can have you feeling like this is actually not possible for me mm-hmm. this is not attainable for me and so you kind of put it on the back burner like you were saying so your feelings aren't hurt or so that you're not let down because the reality of it happening there's just so many factors add enough to make you think that it won't happen mm-hmm. um or that it can't happen mm-hmm. um and so you really can't even tell yourself that you want it because if you do you're going to get let down like then you have to also accept that you you could be let down at the same time so i i totally relate to what you're saying um cuz i think that
2: that's a real thing for so many different reasons yeah to follow up with that rachel um you know i was texting back and forth with nate the other day, I'm trying to make it seem like Nate and I are like real friends. <laughs> um, and I, I had the chance to say, Hey, Nate, we're doing the Mask You Live In um, event through the Black Physicians of Utah. Shout out to Dr. Um, Ferguson and Dr. Baden. Um, much love to them out there. Um, and I, I was appreciative that Nate pulled up. Nate came through. Um, didn't really get a chance to dap my boy up. Mm-hmm. but You know, we, we, hit each other with the head not you know, which was nothing number love. Mm-hmm. And um, in that event, they talked about the mask that we wear as men um, for us to be able to get through um, our life circumstances, that resiliency that we live in. And um, that's something that I found to be true for myself. Um, I Again, I got to be real transparent with y'all um self identity uh, a sense of self identity and like self image is something that i struggled with throughout my whole upbringing um a little background off me um i i grew up um you know obese you know i grew up with you know um, because of the dysfunction that I was experiencing. Now the, the things that I can identify was like depression, things like that. I went to food. I had an unhealthy relationship with food Mm. and food was my way of escaping. And then I had other vices like entertainment and things like that to escape. But food was one of the ones that I, I used to escape. And so when, you know, I was able to shed some of those things, you know, I, I, I cleaned my diet and, you know, I played football. I was terrible at it, you know, <laughs> shout out to Rancho High School back in Las Vegas for my people in Vegas. Um, uh, I was terrible at it. I was terrible, but I, I I stuck close to the principles that I learned from it. Like to this very day, exercising is one of like, it's my hobbies. It's my escape. Mm. It became, I, re- I replaced that food eating thing with exercising and Mm. working out and things like that. And, but that trauma, those hurts didn't disappear. Mm -hmm. So to, when, when you asked that question, Rachel, I was still in a space of reflection. I I couldn't see those things for myself because I was still struggling with my value and my worth Mm. as a black man. So I had the veneer of confidence like you know I, I you know i had you know done the workouts i'd done everything my 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 outward appearance was different and then through the entertainment i learned from the greats you know um i i know you're not a fan of j cole nate but yeah like, but you 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 you, you <laughs> I, had talked a little bit about that j cole can kind of you know hit a certain pocket you know
0: mm-hmm. i mean, not not to, not to get off topic but I, I do like J. Cole. Okay, I enjoy okay, J. Cole. Okay. Mm-hmm. I just okay. think that Kendrick is better. Okay, there we go.
2: But I, I still love J. Cole. Okay, yeah. there we go. And there man. we go. There we go. Don't no, don't speak that now put that so, out there. Right. I was about to quote the middle child where J. Cole says, you know, like I studied your style, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I studied your cadence <laughs> and now mm-hmm. I'm the greatest <laughs> right now. You know, like that you so um for me that's what I did. entertainment was one of the biggest ways I learned to to put on that veneer of masculinity, Mm. you know, D.L. Hughley, Cedric the Entertainer, Steve Harvey, um, you know, Kevin Hart, you know, uh, you know, Cat Williams, you know, Mm. like, I, I saw these men that were so confident in who they are. And I was like, oh, I can model myself after this. So I was able to build that veneer But underneath there was all the insecurities and inadequacies. Hmm. So I, I only could see what was in front of me. And what was in front of me was I was making strides as a professional. You know, I... But I was still like, you know, on my kid Cuddy, Man on the Moon, you know, um, embrace the Martian type stuff, you mm-hmm. know, where, you know, I moved a little awkward and a little funny, but I could put on that veneer. So on the outside, people saw the gloss, you know, they saw that that polished finish.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Interesting. So. I guess along with, with with learning how to how to wear that mask or cope with that mask and learning how to kind of put on that that facade um in what ways have you learned to break that mm. and be more your authentic self in mm. in everyday life and in your profession And one of the ways is embracing
2: my full identity as being a Haitian American mm. Remember what I said when I was young one of the ways in which I learned to be able to survive was to be African-American passing. Hmm. So if I could have the shoes, the clothes, and and one of the things that was hard is we were broke. Hmm. So it was hard to pass because right. we would shop at the swap meets down right. in Florida, um, specifically a brother lived out there in Miami. Pompano Beach area and you know we would cross over to Fort Lauderdale to get to the swap meets and that's where I got all my stuff was at the swap meets Mm. so and that's where most of other Haitian Americans got their stuff was Mm -hmm. at the swap meets Mm -hmm. and people knew how to pick apart faux Nikes versus real (laughs) Nikes okay (laughs) faux Nikes still don't make the cut you know so you might have Nikes on but you ain't got the real swoosh, Sean. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when people picked you apart, you still had that sense of not belonging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, for <laughs> me, you know, one of the things was fully embracing my Haitian identity, and um, preserving my culture and preserving my roots. Being able to return to you know the language of my ancestors and being able to dial back into that because that's a part of me that's a part of my culture that's a part of my history and then i've i i love haitian cuisine mm. i like like when I went home, cause I would eat the school lunches. Cause again, I I, I love food, you know, I'm a foodie, mm-hmm. you know, I still love food. So I I, I would eat the school lunches, but hey, ain't nothing better than Haitian cuisine. Mm. My favorite Haitian dish is dili sauce bois avec sauce viande pour tout pawe. You mm-hmm. know, like I had to say it from my people. They know what it is. It <laughs> is a classic Haitian dish it will blow your mind that mm. dish is delicious every single time mm. and one of the things i've done now as an adult um because you know i had to learn to femme for myself and to cook i cook haitian cuisine mm. like just a few days ago i had a hankering for some maimoulin and um that's like haitian grits it's like a version of haitian grits mm-hmm. and your boy made some maimoulin Hey, yeah. I, I went to YouTube. There's a YouTuber who has a fantastic channel. She's out there from California. I wish I could uh, not California Canada. Mm-hmm. She's out there from Canada. I wish I could you know show her love. I can't remember her name right now. but you know she she's out here for the culture, you know I watch her program, got the recipe made that my mule and it slapped mm-hmm. that my mule slap boy so that's one way i i've been able to fully embrace my identity and drop the mask and then um outside of that is being able to embrace the full spectrum of my emotions as a black man in america mm-hmm. um one of my favorite things that i've been able to connect with is Um, How there's many professionals out there deconstructing masculinity and um, Tony Porter and Ted Bunch. They have a concept called the man box. And it talks about how this is the way in which men are groomed and taught to confine and restrict their emotions and to only reside in the emotions that are deemed to be acceptable for men, like our stoicism, our anger, our joy, our laughter. And then every once in a while, we get to be tired and hungry. Mm. And then, you know, our sexual desires is another way we can express ourselves. And uh, I you know, through this journey have learned that I'm a whole human being and I feel a spectrum of emotions and it's okay for me to admit that I cry, I have sorrow, I have wounds, I have hurts and also I'm confident, I'm courageous and I, I'm hardworking, I'm entrepreneurial. Like when I met Nate, I was like, "Hey, like, what's the on?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I, and then I, I made, "Hey, Nate, what's good? How and you living, my yep. brother?" Yep. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I had. That's some of the ways in which I've been trying to to shed myself. One of my favorite things I remember Nate saying in some of the earlier podcasts was being a recovering misogynist. Mm. You know, like still recovering. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Hey, hey, I'm right day. there with you, Nate. Right there with you, and. <laughs> I, I um, make sure that I go and find knowledge that's outside of myself, um, indigenous pedagogy, you know, LGBTQIA pedagogy. I, I've been working. What is pedagogy? Um, no, it's uh, pedagogy um, is the the curriculum, teachings, the you know, form of knowledge. Um, that you can find in certain different um, fields or, you know, places, places of. it's um,
0: okay. so kind of like a collection of information. Yes. Okay. So, yeah.
2: so pedagogy comes from like that, that, um, that world of education, hmm. you know, so that's just another term for that. Um, but that's sort of what I had okay. to do was um, I was taught a certain way. And I love what Rachel said, who were my influences? Um, The comedians, the hip hop artists, the athletes, you know, the the people who were real quote unquote men. And they presented masculinity to me in a certain way. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's how you're supposed to be a man. Mind you, I told you, I grew up in a single parent household. My mom raised me. I didn't have positive male role models that were presently in my life. I had Uncle Phil on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Mm. Mm. I had Eddie Murphy, you know, I had Steve Harvey, I had Bernie Mac, rest in peace. You know, that's who I had to look up to and say, I'm a model myself off of them. Mm. You know, so now that I'm, I'm, you know, an adult, I'm learning that there are other models there's all their examples of masculinity there's Dr. William Smith out there you know like there's Jason Wilson you know there's um you know uh, Jamie Heath off the man enough Pop- there's other models Tony you know Porter and Ted Bunch there's other models of masculinity that I can actively seek and connect with and be able to you know continue to grow and improve myself as a man Mm. Um,
1: that. question kind of with that in your work that you've done not just you know in your own journey but mm-hmm. through the different clients and different backgrounds um, of your clientele what is one or two three three tops maybe um, of themes that you noticed in you know people of color BIPOC people some uh, issues within our communities oh, that yeah. are a common thread, because uh, I know there's a lot of differences amongst the different um, ethnicities, but I also think there's a lot in common that we all experience as um, BIPOC people. And so I'm curious if you, if you can think of any off the top of your head what some of those would be.
2: Complex trauma, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the personal, interpersonal, and intergenerational wounds that we carry as human beings that's one common thread that has shown itself in almost every single therapy session I've had with our BIPOC community. Mm. It's been complex trauma for sure. And then every other byproduct of that complex trauma, because um, the research shows that trauma is one of the underlining factors for almost every other mental health disorder that we face as human Mm -hmm. beings. Mm. So when I encounter someone and someone's like, Oh, I'm dealing with depression and anxiety, I have deeper conversations with them, we're talking about trauma. Mm, So to me, that's a common thread that has manifested when I work with the clients that I have the privilege of working with.
0: Okay, Mm. interesting. So I guess uh, in a condensed format, what are some ways, some good ways to cope or deal with trauma? Like, if, say, say if someone doesn't have the resources to maybe pay for therapy, what are some things that they could do on their own to practice mindfulness and maybe start to um, maybe not necessarily work through, but like find ways to to manage trauma and you know improve themselves.
2: Mm, great question, Nate. Um, I had the fortunate opportunity to see an expert who's been doing this longer than me talk about some of those ways. And she broke it down into the three R's of working through complex trauma. The first R is recognizing. Um, recognition of it takes courage. Um I have the opportunity to have read uh, Dr. Sean Wright's book, The Four Pivots of Reimagining Justice and Reimagining Ourselves. The first pivot is going from lens to mirror work, and he calls that vision. For us as a Black community, when have we allowed ourselves to do that mirror work, that first are recognizing, that something is off. Mm-hmm. Something is wrong. That us constantly being on the grind and being on the hustle, that's not normal. For us to have the inability to rest and to feel guilty when we do mm. take moments of rest, that's abnormal. Mm-hmm. So recognizing
1: mm-hmm.
2: when do we take our that time to be in a state of self-reflection, that courageous space of sitting with ourselves and saying, I am not okay, and that's okay. Mm. So recognizing the next step, resiliency building. And within our community, resiliency is not a problem in terms of survival. Mm. I always joke that if you're trying to learn how to survive, you find a Black person. We're going to teach you how to survive. Oh, yeah. True, absolutely. Okay? We are experts. In our DNA. Especially, mm-hmm. you're going to find a Black woman. Go find a Black woman. She's yeah. going to really teach you how to survive. <laughs> all right? Shout out to Rachel and all the beautiful <laughs> Black women in the world. Yes. So, um, resiliency building in the sense of um, we have inherited certain traits and resources from our ancestors. Um, Dr. Joy grew. DeGru- talked about a concept called appropriate adaptation within her book post-traumatic slave syndrome Mm. and what appropriate adaptation is is what we had to do to essentially live and try to make it another day throughout our experience of slavery and across the diaspora we've experienced slavery, whether it's my ancestors by the French or whether it's my African-American brothers from another mother, sisters from another mother, they're Europeans. So what we did was when the masters would come up and say, oh boy, you got a mighty strong boy over there. Oh, like, look at, look, look, look at that. Like, they, they looking like they're going to be able to be amazing at tilling the field. We would be like, oh no, they're, they're lazy. They're weak. Mm-hmm. Oh no, they, they can't even pick up a stack of anything. We would diminish and minimize our capabilities and our loved ones capabilities Hoping that that would prevent them from being the subject Mm. of tyranny and degradation and dehumanization. And we still carry those practices to this very day. Mm. So, resiliency building is us being able, again, to first recognize that those practices are problematic Mm. and that us finding new tools to be able to actively work on restoration and transformation healing Mm. um the last one is uh the r the restoration um one of the things that dr sean jenright talked about which was his last pivot in his book which was from hustle to flow he talked about how we are at war with rest restoration doesn't come from the hustle from the grind from you know the keeping it pushing onto the next. Restoration comes from those moments of stillness, those moments of tranquility, equanimity, and inner peace. Restoration is one of the most valuable resources that our our community is in direct of. We have a lack of restoration in the Black community. Mm -hmm. When was the last time we intentionally allowed ourselves to fall back and decompress Mm -hmm. as a community?
1: Mm -hmm. We haven't had the privilege to
2: (laughs) say less. So those are the three R's that I would recommend to my community, recognizing, resiliency building and restoration, and this did not come from me. This came from an amazing black woman that I saw on a TED talk. I just can't remember her name right now, okay. so I gotta give credit where okay. credit is
0: due. Love yes. that. Love that. Okay. Cool. Right. You else beautiful.
1: Original? No, I I love that. I thought that was great. And um I guess one other thing to maybe as we close, what what advice would you give um, any other future um, Black students or, or someone who's wanting to enter the space of being a mental health professional um, and just on all you've endured and, and learned? What advice would you give them as they enter into this space, as they enter in the journey of helping other people heal their trauma and, and work through um, some difficult things? What, what advice would you give them before they embarked on doing something like this?
2: Um, the first thing that popped to mind, and um I'm just gonna say it, uh don't do it in Utah. Oh mm.
1: <laughs> for real. <laughs>
2: um, uh I that's too I, funny. <laughs> that uh the the years when I was pursuing my degree from 2018 to 2020, I experienced some of the worst um dehumanization and devaluation I've ever experienced as a human being. Mm-hmm. As I was working to become a mental health professional, right. I was being targeted and being broken down, mm. right? which made it challenging to be able to show up yeah. for the clients that I was working with. Yeah. A brother was, doing therapy and having to work as a therapist. And it was because of the experiences that I was enduring while doing my program. Mm. So for my BIPOC brothers and sisters out there seeking to pursue a a degree in this uh, noble profession, what you're going to find is you're going to encounter the mental health industrial complex and that's not something i coin and that's coming from the liberated um, pedagogy that's within the mental health profession right now dr jennifer mullins um, is a professional that has coined the term decolonizing therapy or if she didn't coin it she's making it super popular mm-hmm. so i don't take credit from anybody and that is has been some of the most profound um, revision and um, transformative ways of deconstructing the very myopic education that I received from my program and being able to show up authentically for my clients and to not just meet them with sympathy and there's an article out there that says clients even need more than empathy they need solidarity Mm. and for me that's how i try to show up with my clients is I try to show up with solidarity and I would recommend any mental health, aspiring mental health professional that shares in our identities or that has other marginalized identities, go seek programs that honor your whole humanity. Mm. Do not be in programs that see you as a box to check off that see you as, you know, something that's, you know, you know, the performative allyship right. piece. No, go to a program that doesn't just talk about EDI, you know, DEI, Jedi, or whatever. They don't just talk about it. They really be about that life. Yeah. That's what I would recommend to aspiring mental health professionals. Any marginalized aspiring mental health professionals out there, don't do it in Utah. Mm. <laughs> That's what I would say. Real.
0: I don't got anything to look, add to that. I that's said, that's and, a great way to end it, right there. Yep. <laughs> don't do it in Utah, <laughs> especially with the uh, the DEI changes.
1: But, okay, mm-hmm. look, and we just talked about that last week. Okay, yeah,
0: sure did, sure did.
1: <clears throat> um, onto our recommendations, Nate. Anything yeah, recommendations. Okay, you want me to go first this week? I actually yeah, have what I'm gonna recommend. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so guys, if you can't tell, I'm a little sick right now. So my recommendation for the week is to take your take your vitamin C pills. Mm-hmm. I got, I was slacking on those. Um get your whatever vaccines you need to get flu shot, uh your covid booster every year, do that. Do all of it because um I have been lacking on my medical stuff and clearly it has shown cuz I have a weak immune system overall and so I get sick like all the, I get sick at least like once during the winter time. But yeah, that that would be my recommendation is everybody stay up on your probiotics stay up on everything um keep doing it so that you can build a good immune system and not be down sick like me because you don't appreciate your body until it stops working um so that's that's my recommendation for the week if you needed someone to remind you and be in your ear like a grandma i'll be that person
0: this Mm -hmm. one for you Mm -hmm. sounds good and you're like a grandma every week (laughs) um my recommendation for this week I don't really have anything crazy so I'll just recommend a show that I've been binge watching lately um if you've never watched Dexter I would recommend that show it's uh it's one of my favorites Mm -hmm. um they made eight seasons back in the day I think starting in 2006 just a great show but it's about uh a man who's a serial killer Mm -hmm. um but he only kills people who have killed other people Ah. and he works for the police Mm -hmm. and so he's like kind of like using police resources to like find people that flew under the radar um and he kills them and like the whole show is about him like managing that desire to kill Um, and his father was a cop and his father knew that he like had that darkness inside of him so his father taught him like how to think like a police officer and like how to get around the law so you know, he just like while navigating regular life and like pretending to be a you know a person that has real feelings. He's also like a serial killer by night. It's a very fascinating show. And but every he's season, he's killing
1: people that need to be dead. So I guess. Yeah,
0: every season slaps too. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. Wow. So okay. I, um, I highly recommend that. And then they they rebooted it a couple years ago um, because the ending of the first show wasn't great. So they rebooted it, made a good ending. So I'm happy with that. So yeah, check okay, out so Dexter. It's on Paramount Plus.
1: <laughs> I should watch the reboot one.
0: No, 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 you want to watch the first one, oh, okay? And then the whole thing is great, and the reboot just like adds to it. Oh, the yeah.
1: reboot's in addition. Mm-hmm. Got yeah.
0: it. So that's my recommendation for the week. Uh, that's all I got, Mister Noel. What you got?
2: Um, and it's I have I have quite a bit. Um, the one of the ones that's coming to mind right now, I've uh, really enjoyed Jason Wilson's work. Um, he has his uh memoir, uh, Cry Like a Man. And then he has his, um, transformational work, which is called, um, Battle Cry. And I have the fortunate opportunity to have both of those works. Um, I do recommend, uh, Dr. Sean Jinwright's book, um, The Four Pivots of Reimagining Justice and Reimagining Ourselves. Um, that book is, uh, very healing in itself. Um, I recommend, uh, Liz Plank's book. Um, For the Love of Men, A New Vision of Mindful Masculinity. Mm. Um, Liz Plank quotes in her book um, uh, like if we're not working to transform our traumas, then we are more than likely transmitting and transferring them. Mm. So um, that work is fire. Um, I recommend um, the Man Enough podcast with um, Jamie Heath, um, Justin Baldoni and Liz Plank, the author of the book I just recommended. That that podcast um is dope, but not as dope as the Black Menace is, of course. You know. <laughs> uh, uh and yeah, like I'll, I'll leave it like that. I'll leave it right there. Those Beautiful. are my recommendations. That's great. Yeah.
0: Love it, love it. Uh, a couple quick closing remarks here. Um, so first off, Greg, thank you for coming on the show. It's been an amazing conversation. Yes, you shared great. a lot of insight and you have uh, cemented yourself as one of the legendary episodes of Black Menace's podcast. No, oh, literally. yeah. So wow. like, I definitely
1: going down, it's like oh, a, the wow. most <laughs> dedicated listener, I mean, person we've had on who's been a listener and um, mm-hmm.
2: now a, a, a guest on the show. So thank yeah, yeah. you. And that's nothing but love. Hey, can I plug some things? Yeah, yes. Um I want to plug uh, Two Brothers Counseling. I want to thank... Um, to Colvay Jackson Van for putting me on and, um, you know, giving me this chance to transition into private practice with them. It's been beautiful. Mm. Um, I want to plug Project Success Coalition, um, Ms. Betty Sawyer, a legend out here Mm -hmm. in the state of Utah. Um, Ms. Betty um, supported a brother when I was at my lowest. So got to show love to Ms. Betty Sawyer. And of course, the Black Physicians of Utah had already talked about Dr. Um, Ferguson and Dr. Baden. Um, showed a brother nothing but love very supportive of me and helping me to grow as a professional and of course I gotta shout out my beautiful wife Wendley Noel and and my beautiful baby girl Zenya Noel nothing but love to the fam oh,
0: there you oh, go my oh, my yes. yeah. a good shout out hey, Richard, you got anything else?
1: no I don't
0: <laughs> cool cool alright so closing remarks really quickly um, if there are any stories that you want to share with us or people you want us to interview send us an email at blackmenacespodcast at gmail.com And then you can follow Black Menaces on all platforms, just at Black Menaces on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and then on YouTube, where The Black Menaces. Uh, Feel free to join, subscribe, watch our uh, video episodes of the podcast on YouTube. And then you can also support us with donations at uh, The Black Menaces on Venmo or uh, theblackmenaces.org slash donate. You can also go to theblackmenaces.org slash store and buy some cool merch. We got some hoodies on there, some water bottles, notebooks, stuff like that. And we'll probably do a little reboot maybe this year and uh, get some new merch up there as well. Um, But we appreciate y'all listening to the podcast and uh, we look forward to catching you next week.